You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So you're gone now, and who's to blame? Left down here among the sons of Cain. Have you gone on to the heavenly fame? Leaving me here among the sons of Cain. Hey! Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore. Assistant Professor of English and Director of Composition Culture at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs. But today, since this is Emmanuel College's fall break, I am broadcasting from Casa Gilmore. I am joined today uh, by the recently evicted David Grubbs. David, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm good, and uh, I'm extraordinarily glad that someone in my apartment complex has Wi-Fi. All right. Uh, I'm joined also from... Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida by Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm good. Hey, we're at episode 30. I just wanted to point out we have a month of Christian, uh, Christian Humanists. Wow. Well, a month plus if you can sit, if you count the decimals. It's true. But True enough. A month of official episodes <laughs> because we are a true triumvirate. There will be no Crassus in this trio. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> And if you're educated enough to get that joke, then, I don't know, boom roasted or something. Anyway. You've come, you've come to the right place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this week on the blog, we've got a regular Bible post. We've got another post full of links. Uh, we've got yet another book review. I think I'm out of new books to review, thankfully, because I'm getting tired of posting nothing but book reviews. Uh, we haven't heard much email from listeners. We do ask you to go ahead and send that in. We did get a comment on the blog from Phil Rutledge noting that for a guy who claims to be a pacifist I threaten an awful lot of physical violence on the podcast and I'll just repeat what I told him on the blog Uh, I try to be a pacifist I didn't say I'm any good at it at any rate, those he hits us are... both. By the way, he uh, he physically abuses us. We, we David and I both <laughs> tried to quit this podcast after the spring, and uh, Nathan strong armed us into staying. Threatened our families, our pets. That's our right. Came all persons. the way down to Tallahassee. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not so much his fists that I fear, Michael, as it is his axe handle. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, at any rate, listeners. <laughs> I we wanted to point out while we're talking about, uh, about listener feedback, we also have a Facebook page now. You can just search for The Christian Humanist, and you can like us. We oh, do. very cool. I didn't know we had that. I thought I sent uh, you guys a thing to it. You'll have to look for it. I'll make you administrators. Neato. Well, at any rate, like us on Facebook, send us email, and especially get on iTunes. And if you are one of our faithful listeners, we love you. Show us that you love us by giving <laughs> us some kind of review on iTunes, or if you don't have time for that. Simply click on a five-star rating. It takes a few seconds, and it lasts forever. At any rate, today's topic, guys, uh, this is something that has come to my attention because in my teen class at Athens Christian Church, I've been teaching Revelation. In my intro to Lit class over at Emmanuel College, I've been teaching Hamlet. Uh, The topic, of course, is revenge. Uh, It's uh, almost hard to explain the concept because it is self-evident. 
Uh, mm. So, I mean, I want to just dig right into some of the traditions behind it. Michael, one of the earliest texts concerning revenge uh, doesn't establish revenge or doesn't establish its outlines, but it just sort of assumes revenge is there, and then it puts limits on it. And, of course, I'm referring to the opening chapters of Genesis where Cain, uh, the brother of Abel who murders Abel, fears that someone will slaughter him as a revenge killing. Uh, and he pleads to God, and he receives the famous Mark of Cain. Uh, Michael, talk a little bit about that story. Uh, and then, if you would, talk a little bit about the law, for, the law of eye-for-eye eye revenge that sometimes goes by its Latin name, Lex Talionis. Sure, and I am going to assume, by the way, that most of our listeners probably already know the story of Cain and Abel. If they don't, you can find it in the early chapters of Genesis. Chapter 4, to be precise. That's what I thought, but I didn't want to say it and sound like a complete ignoramus if I was wrong. (laughs) So Cain, um, speaking of revenge, seems to view his murder of Abel as a sort of revenge to begin with, right? So Cain gets in trouble with God because he gives... Um, an improper sacrifice, and he thinks it's Abel's fault for giving such a good one. So I, I think Cain's, Cain's murder of Abel is um, motivated at least partially by what he sees as revenge. Um, and thus, it makes sense that he's afraid after that happens that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, and that when he gets ejected into this wide world of people, um, you know, wherever they came from, he is going to be noticed as a murderer and what he did to Abel will be done unto him. Um, So the mark of Cain, which I think our popular culture and our kind of uh, mythos and folk music and whatnot makes into a bad thing, the mark of Cain is really a kind of mercy because it it clearly saves Cain's life. It's a way of... It's not God marking Cain as a murderer, although that might happen as well. It's God marking Cain as under his special protection. So really, we should all we should all hope for the mark of Cain, especially if we've killed somebody. Um, I'm going to jump ahead and get right into that eye for an eye in the Hebrew Bible. Um, that I've heard, and I'm no biblical scholar, but I've heard that is also a mercy because it limits revenge to a single eye. Uh, w- without that law, it might be possible if somebody causes you to lose an eye for you just to put them to death. So in its way, the, um, the, the law of Moses, the eye for an eye revenge, is merciful. And of course, that will become more merciful in the New Testament, but we'll get to that, uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Well, you- sure. And, you know, part, part of the background of that, of course, is the, I believe, great-grandson of Cain is Lamech, uh, mm-hmm. who says, all right, if Cain's going to be avenged sevenfold, and by the way, I love that there's a band called Avenge Sevenfold. I couldn't tell you the names <laughs> of two of their songs, but as a band name, I have to tip my hat. Uh, but at any rate, if I never made that be, connection till now. <laughs> if Kane is going to be Avenge Sevenfold, then anyone who even touches Lamech is going to be Avenge Seventy Sevenfold. And the idea is, you know, that uh, in those old lawless days uh, of the ancient Middle East, uh, if you killed my brother. Uh, then it was perfectly expected for me to not only come back and kill you, but also your family and possibly your na- neighbors. And the Lex Talionis puts a limit on that and says, life singular for life singular. In so its way, absolutely- Go ahead, no, I'm, Michael. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I was going to say, in its way, it's an awful lot like what you get in um, the, the story of Orestes and the, um, and the Furies. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, in, in those stories, and I, I can never pronounce the name of the three books together. Can you do, somebody do that for me? I've always heard it said Oresteia. Yeah, there you go. That one, the the three books by, uh, the three plays Aeschylus. by by Aeschylus. Oh, sorry. Yes, no, I knew. <laughs> I was playing Jeopardy. <laughs> I see. I, I, who, who is Aeschylus? Um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Who is he? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did you guys hear Thank that? That was that was my that was my cat knocking all my soda cans over. And anyway, <laughs> in that series of books, you get a a series of eye for an eye retributions. So you get Clytemnestra who kills Agamemnon because Agamemnon put Iphigenia to death, and then uh, Orestes kills Clytemnestra. And and th- the idea is this would continue. Um, ad infinitum if not for this system of government they set up in the third book in the third in the third play where you're tried for it and it, it's suddenly the government's responsibility to decide guilt and innocence instead of the individual family right. and so yeah, really with the, uh, with the with the lex talionis i think you're looking at something fairly similar it's 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 the the government in this case a theocracy run by uh the representatives of god it's the government's right. job to decide what retribution should be and who's guilty Mm-hmm. Right. I, I did want to. Uh, I I, th- I think it's relevant is uh, the notion of cities of refuge in uh, the little the Levitical law that when you when you kill a man, and I presumably that that case has not been uh, sufficiently adjudicated for for you to actually be taken out of the camp, uh, taken out of the camp or or the city and actually stoned by the assembly. Um, that there would be an avenger of blood, uh, I believe is the the term that the King James uses. Joel yes. um, Hadam in Hebrew. Yes, uh, from from the uh, the deceased's family, who uh, seems to have the 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 duty to chase you down and kill you dead. Um, but uh, it it that it was interesting to me to look at that in that they don't they don't ban the avenger of blood and say wait until the course is adjudicated and he can be duly stoned by everyone. Um, instead they set up cities that you can, you know, if you get there, you're safe, you're at home base, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and you know, no one can tag you. You just got to stay there until the high priest dies. Um, right. And then of course that tradition gets completely turned on its head by the time you get to first Kings, because one of the enemies of Solomon goes to one of these cities and grabs the horns of the altar. Uh, and Solomon just sends word to his goons, we'll pull him off the altar and kill him then. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so any, anyway I, I guess my point is is that the, the what the law describes seems to be a society that doesn't have um a designated unitary executive right that that the laws are there um there is a judicial system that tries guilt within the law but there is no designated body who executes the the results of the adjudication um right but is, in the context of those cities of refuge i mean it seems to be a place of refuge for those who have accidentally killed somebody. Right. Uh, if I remember that right, you know, so that if, if you, you lay in ac- wait, <laughs> say again. Yeah. If you lay in wait, yeah, they're just going to kick you out of the cities of refuge. Right. Right. And you know, that is the system of, you know, Hebrew criminal investigation, uh, you know, CSI Jericho, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, if you have been laying in wait or if you use a weapon of iron or something like that, you don't get that refuge, but they acknowledge that these families, because of these centuries-old traditions of revenge, 
are going to come after you anyway, even though by civil law, to the extent there is one, you probably wouldn't be executed. So you can go to that city of refuge. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, David, I, you know, going from Hebrew traditions to Greeks, I, uh, I made Michael talk about Homer last time. I'm going to make you talk about him this time. Uh, <laughs> as we talked about in our episode on friendship, uh, what draws Achilles out of his wrathful sulking and onto the battlefield at Troy uh, is not civic honor and certainly not any sense of duty to Agamemnon, but revenge for Patroclus. Um, what does Homer do with revenge towards the end of the Iliad? Uh, and how does Achilles' behavior in particular relate to classical Greek norms in general? Mm. The last question I'll probably need some help on, but I'm fairly right. fairly straight with the story. Um, I mean, well, I guess we already got to consider that the, 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 the story of the Trojan War is already a, a vendetta story, um, unless you want to see it as a rescue. Um, we're, we've come to rescue Helen. Uh, so there, there's already already that is hanging all over it. But uh, since Homer designates from the opening line of, of the epic that the wrath of Achilles is his subject, right? Um, and even before Patroclus uh, or Patroclus or uh, – I always said Patroclus. Anyway, um, even before Hector kills him, um, the Trojan Hector kills Achilles' friend, uh, Achilles is already engaged in an act of vengeance. But that act of vengeance is, uh, is literally his inaction. Um, Agamemnon has taken his woman, and so Achilles refuses to fight and with, with a little speech that's basically like, you'll all be sorry. Um, so he, he's, he's already inclined to, to act in that kind of uh, sort of spiteful, spiteful way. Um, but when, uh, when Patroclus eventually, I guess, use, loses patience with Achilles and decides to to intervene for the for the morale of the Greeks and so impersonates Achilles and gets himself killed, um, then Achilles' rage, which is already in action, Achilles is always angry at someone. It's just <laughs> who is it directed at at the moment? Um, it gets redirected to the Trojans and particularly to Hector, and he just massacres the Trojans. It's 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 brutal. It is it is a massacre. They never had a chance. Um, Achilles is Superman, basically. And when you put Superman on the field with a bunch of normal guys, it's not a stand-up fight. Um, he just massacres them. And eventually, uh, he, uh, Hector is the only Trojan who will stand up to him. And he chases Hector around the city and then kills him. And then ties Hector to the back of the chariot and drags him around. Um, so... It, Achilles' sense of sense of vengeful rage has not merely led him to get the guy that got his friend. He doesn't just win; he humiliates the dead. He humiliates the Trojans, which I think at this point, where Homer is assuming that that his audience knows this is a bad thing. Um, I think <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that Homer loves Hector. And that's right, and so right. should the audience. You know, Hector's a good guy. Um, you know, I think I think that's probably one of the reasons why the Roman sympathies lay with the Trojans and the medievals who considered Hector one of the nine worthies. And even Dante stuck him in limbo while he stuck Achilles in hell. Um, yeah. You know, H- Hector's a good guy. And while right. it was it was fair game to kill him in war, dragging him behind the chariot that was 
that was too far. Well, and that's one of a long list of reasons that Plato just has fits about Achilles too. He wants to keep Homer because he's such a strong tradition, but he says, but we got to cut out all this Achilles stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's a, uh, (laughs) go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry. I was going to say he's a uh, Christian bookstore style censor. (laughs) Plato is in a Republic. Nice. Um, Michael, do you want to chime in? I mean, I know that the Troades of, and and again, pronunciation is always a problem with these ancient Greek works, uh, but uh, Euripides' play about the Trojan women, there we go, uh, where there is a spirit (laughs) that demands vengeance for the dead of battle. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Michael? No, I did. I I didn't reread that for for today. Okay, so. all right, all right. I'll you know I am only familiar with the Roman version that Seneca wrote. So I mean the the basic plot line is one that reappears later on in Renaissance drama, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But uh, at the close of the Trojan War, uh, the one of the ghosts of the Trojans, and I'm forgetting what character it is, uh, comes to. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think it is Menelaus and demands revenge. And mm-hmm. the whole Seneca version, anyway, that's the one that I'm familiar with, uh, revolves around the pleas of the survivors from among the Trojans. Please don't execute what children we have left. Uh, in Seneca's version, anyway, I mean, it, it ends with this awful and bloody slaughter. And, you know, as with most Seneca plays that I've read, uh, it ends with this sense that the world is a violent and a senseless place, and the best way to face it is stoically. Which it's it's that's really kind of the way Euripides works in his other plays. I I, I haven't read the Trojan Women in a long time, but um, okay, uh, Heracles is probably worth looking at. Okay, go. So, um, the part of the story of Heracles that everyone always forgets is that when Heracles. Hercules, if you want to, uh, if you want to be Roman, when he comes home from finishing his quest, he comes home to his family, Megara, and uh, his children, and he's happy for about forty-five seconds, and then, <laughs> and then Hera wreaks her revenge on him. Um, and I'll get into why why she needs to wreak her revenge on him in a minute. She wreaks on her revenge on him by driving him crazy and making him kill his entire family in cold blood. And I mean the point. With that play, as well as most of Euripides' tragedies, is that the gods are as wicked as human beings, and they're not to be trusted, but we have to live under them anyway. Um, he's he's not quite as blatantly stoic as Seneca, I'm sure, but uh, that that is that is definitely not an attitude Seneca made up. And, and he, if if he's if he's rewriting Euripides' plays, then uh, it's 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 no surprise that he finds the attitude there. Um, but the the revenge part of that is interesting because Hera has to. She's wreaking revenge on Heracles for something Heracles didn't even do. Heracles is the illegitimate son of Zeus and some human woman he he impregnated. You know, there's so many I forget their names. <laughs> but uh, so so she she is really wreaking revenge on Zeus by destroying Heracles's life and by killing this uh, innocent family. Which she very often does with the children of Zeus's mistresses. So uh, I think in those plays, in, in Euripides in particular, you see you see an attitude that revenge is a divine attribute. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, except that it's not the Lord saying it. <laughs> it's a group of very petty and wicked uh, mm-hmm. small-g gods. 
Right. I mean, that that makes it interesting that he was Aristotle's favorite tragedy writer because Aristotle envisions this very orderly universe where if something bad happened to you, you must have had it coming. And that's just not what I get from Euripides. But it is what you get from Aeschylus or from Sophocles. Oh, very true. But I mean, you know, in the poetics, as I remember, you know, Aristotle a couple times says the the purest tragedy is Euripides' tragedy. I it's certainly the most modern. I um I taught Heracles next to King Lear, um, uh-huh. in in my freshman comp class at UGA, and uh, it it fits in perfectly. It, uh, if not for the subject matter, I don't th- think you'd know which one was uh, which one was wh- whenever Euripides was writing 500 BCE, and which one was 1600 uh, CE, and and I don't think you'd be able to tell either one of them except for the language, apart from something written today. Mm-hmm. They both have very modern attitudes toward um, suffering and God and things like that. If well, I'd had right. time and it wasn't a freshman comp class, I probably would have assigned Moby Dick um, next to it. But I'll get to Moby Dick a little later. All right, all right. Well, right now I want you to get to the New Testament because, Michael, when Jesus and Paul come on the scene, they take a radical swing on this question. Not unprecedented because we see some of this in Plato's dialogues. Uh, but we need to note that as we progress into the Christian era, uh, Matthew on one hand and Roman on the other have some very particular things to say about revenge. Uh, Michael, how do they set the stage differently from the ways that the Greeks and the Romans do? Well, I'm going to start with Paul's thoughts on revenge because they're easy to interpret. Um, he gives a litany of ways to present ourselves as living sacrifices in Romans 12, and as one of them, he says that we shouldn't take revenge because vengeance is the Lord's, and he's quoting Leviticus there. Sure. Mm -hmm. And instead, we're supposed to show kindness to our enemies because that will, as we all know, heap burning coals on their heads, right? Yeah. Right. And that that (laughs) phrase is often taken to mean it'll drive them crackers for our cwc friends uh it'll 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 drive them it'll 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 drive the uh enemies crazy if you're nice to them when they're mean to you but that's not at all apparently what paul means and nathan as usual you can correct me on the bible stuff but um my understanding is that there was an egyptian ceremony of contrition that involved putting burning coals on your head in a basket i guess and walking around town so everybody knew you were contrite for what you did so the idea here from leviticus and moving into romans is that um when you show uh kindness to people who mistreat you instead of taking vengeance on them it will move them to repentance and perhaps bring them um into the fold of christianity am i getting that right nathan i i had actually never heard that i mean i i won't deny that there was such an egyptian ceremony but i haven't heard of it the explanation i've always heard is that this is a a sort of apocalyptic leave vengeance to God sort of message. But I mean, that, that one, I mean, makes just as much sense as the passage. So it certainly uh, makes it a little more cuddly than the, uh, than the apocalyptic one. And as I'm we right, know, right. St. Paul is all about presenting himself as cuddly. I still like the drive some crackers version. It's, it's just more fun. <laughs> then I'll, I'll go ahead and try to get into the section in Matthew. It's a little controversial and I don't know what I think about it. So you guys will have to tell me what to think. Um, I'm just going to read what it says so we, we are all on the same page. This is Matthew 5, 38 through 41, and I use the, uh, the New American Standard. 
Mm. Uh, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Right. It's a familiar passage. Um, I've always suspected that it promotes a total pacifism, which is if somebody is attacking you, if somebody's robbing you, if someone is raping you or um, attempting to run you down with a car or whatever it is, you don't get to resist. That That's how I've always taken it. But I've also heard people say that the operative word in there is the word slap, because it's not a physical attack we're talking about, but an insult. And I will admit that that, that has a certain currency, because the other two scenarios he gives you seem to be more insulting than attacking. All right, David, I'll let you have first run at this, and then I'll... Uh, maybe you can bring some clarity. When it says, do not resist an evil person, what is the word for evil person? Do you happen to know, Nathan? Um, my guess would be that it is the Greek poneros, which is, I mean, a pretty standard Koine Greek word for Bad evil. Guy. Is that yeah, where they get yeah. Panera bread? I believe so, yes. <laughs> it, it, is, it is the den of evil, which is why my family always goes there before church so that we can ritually be in the world before we come to the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> should, should you sin so that grace might increase? <laughs> Perhaps the, not, but the bagels are very good. The way that um, the way that it was taught to me is that the the one strike the the striking on the right cheek, the being sued, and the being compelled to go a mile that all three that all three of those things were um, were placed within a legal context. Uh, the one who can force you to go a mile is a Roman soldier who can just sort of snag any kind of. Uh, colonial non-citizen and force them to carry his stuff for a mile. I've heard that too. Right. Um, in right. terms of being this is, being this is largely the scholarship that Walter Wink popularized. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I I don't know Walter Wink. So anyway. All right. Um. So if you go back to the the verse before that, if someone sues you and takes your cloak or takes your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So in this case, someone is suing you apparently. You know, trying to through the law get some kind of redress from you, and they they want one particular kind of recompense. You're supposed to go beyond that and give more recompense, and then work back beyond that to striking the cheek, um, which I'm just presenting the way it was presented to me. If you look at being struck on the cheek, uh, if it's being slapped in this kind of judicial context, you're being slapped as a rebuke for something that you've done. And it's basically saying, um, whereas the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth limited the amount of retribution that an injured party could seek, that what Christ is doing is saying that the injuring party should actually go beyond the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and offer more in recompense to the injured party. Interesting. If if someone is striking you for having misspoken, for having insulted, or whatever— then you should turn your other cheek also and accept more recompense for what you've done and so forth and so on. To me, the only sticking point in the, in the context is what exactly the word for evil person is. I really, really wish that the word was adversary in a legal sense, but um, not having the Greek text in front of me. Uh, right. Neither I, do I, I, I so I'm, I'm not going to put any money <laughs> on that poneros. I'm just guessing just because when the King James uses evil, it almost always corresponds to that Greek word. Okay. 
I mean, that, that's just from, you know, years of teaching Sunday school. That's a, a guess, but an educated one. Anyway, that's that's what I've always heard that it's not it's not pacifism. It's about if you have injured someone, you need to go beyond the legal requirements for restitution. Right. So, so we and, have and three uh, three interpretations so far. Right. Well, I mean, what's interesting, David, is that the Anabaptist tradition almost never goes to Matthew five to talk about its pacifism. Really. So it's interesting that I mean, on a a tacit level, at least. Uh, the Anabaptists seem to agree with the two interpretations that you two just brought forth. Uh, you know, usually Anabaptist theology goes to the cross rather than the Sermon on the Mount to talk about pacifism. You know, Jesus's command to take up the cross and follow, they take that as, all right, you know, this is not armed resistance. This is non-resistance, right? You know, to follow Christ as Christ took up the Roman cross is to follow Christ. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, this this Matthew passage, I think you're both right to say that, you know, the particularity and the precision of the language indicates that he is reacting to some kind of tradition. You all are both right that, I mean, there are, you know, we've got 2,000 years of trying to pinpoint that tradition. Uh, mm. I encourage readers to read widely uh, because any three commentaries you read on Matthew are going to give you about five interpretations. Of turn the other cheek, leaving so, the team. <laughs> I, th I think we can. I think almost all of them would agree that 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 passage is against revenge in the sense that we've been talking about. I certainly if, think so. Yes, it, revenge certainly as a civic right that a an individual has against another individual. I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, Christ is remarkably unconcerned with uh, rights, human uh, rights in general. I I, I would say uh, for the Christian, it's all about oh, ignoring sure, your sure. rights. Right. And I you know that you know what the Anabaptist theologians that I've read have written uh is that you know when Christ calls people to follow him, you know, uh he doesn't say, you know, eat like a, like a Mediterranean and therefore follow me. And he doesn't say, you know, speak angrily to Pharisees and therefore follow me. But he says, take up your cross and follow me. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's that's generally the root of Anabaptist-style pacifism. That's well, interesting. at any rate, God, yeah. Um, well, David, I want to get, get further into the Christian era here. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, despite you know, these strong reservations in the Sermon on the Mount and what seems like an absolute prohibition in Romans, um, the medievals seem to love them some revenge stories, all right? <laughs> uh, you know, I want you to talk about Arthur, but really I want you to start with Beowulf and that famous saying about mourning and revenging. Uh, and, I mean, tell me, I mean, do they even attempt to reconcile these things? Uh, and if they do... How do they do so? But first, David, I want to hear that fanfare. <laughs> and now, David Grubbs talks Beowulf. All right, go, David. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to bring up Cain again uh, because – this is uh, this is how the Beowulf poet introduces Grendel. Uh, he introduces him as a uh, as a descendant of Cain, that primal murderer who killed his brother, and for that uh, was punished by God, 
and made a a wanderer through the earth. Um, the in in Beowulf the and in in sort of the 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 broader Christian uh, the broader the broader Christian Anglo-Saxon tradition, Cain uh, as a wanderer is a very powerful emblem. Um, I know that in Augustine's City of God, Cain uh, is Cain is the guy who founds the alternate city, but in an, uh, in Anglo-Saxon Christianity, Cain uh, is is the wanderer, the outcast, the outlaw. And Grendel is a descendant of Cain. So we have uh, right off the bat Grendel um, sort of occupying the position of one who commits um, murders out of out of spite, out of sen- out of a sense of being aggrieved, but also um, within the context of divine justice, the God who avenges Abel's death on Cain by uh, you know by exiling him from humanity. Um, and that's not the only fratricide we have. There's also a character by the name of Unferth who Beowulf himself castigates for having killed his brothers and tells him he's going to burn in hell for it. Um, the, uh, the quote that you're talking about is after Grendel's mother, after Beowulf has killed Grendel, um, Grendel's mother comes to practice some eye for eye revenge and so because they killed her baby she grabs uh one of the danes uh one of king hrothgar uh king hrothgar's right hand man and runs off with him and eventually they find uh, uh his severed head later um and it is that at this point that beowulf says it's better to it's better to go get revenge than to mourn um the context uh is I think interesting on this point because this is Beowulf saying we need to get revenge after Grendel's mother has just, you know, committed revenge basically. Um, but I think it has a different feel in the in the eye of the poet. I don't think he intends us to see it as as equivalent because Beowulf's previous uh, defeat of Grendel was framed as divine retri- uh, divine retributive justice in itself. That Beowulf was an instrument of God for God's vengeance against Grendel, and before Beowulf goes into the fight with Grendel, he says that it is God's justice that will determine who is in the right, and we will know what God, you know, what the decision of God's justice is, because that's the person who will win. <laughs> um, so when Beowulf sets off, declaring it's better to 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 get vengeance than it is to mourn. It is in this this broader context of there is a God who sees the evil in the world and has an avenging wrath against evildoers, but uses human instruments in order to get that wrath, uh, in order to to wreak that vengeance upon the objects of his wrath. Um, and Beowulf assumes that uh, in this particular case, he sees the right of it, and he is that proper divine instrument. Um, we may quibble with his theology, but I think that's what the poet's encouraging us to see. All right. Uh, I mean, since this is, I mean, a continuing back-and-forth revenge story, I mean, David, I mean, you, you've you spent more time with Beowulf than I have. I mean, is there any sort of monastic critique of revenge in there? Or do you really think this is a, a scheme of providential 
I, I guess let, let me ask you this: Is is Beowulf a Christian who shouldn't seek revenge, or is he the sword of the magistrate who doesn't shed blood for nothing? Uh, he's the sword of the magistrate. He's okay, the, that, that's kind of the sense I got from it as well. Go ahead, sorry. He he's God's judge, basically. Um, the people, you know, the people are being plagued, and and a judge is is. Uh, uh, God raises up a judge and sends him to deliver the people. I, I think that's basically the pattern that the first half of Beowulf shows. All right, so uh, God raises up Assyria to punish Syria, and God raises up Persia to punish Babylon, and God raises up Beowulf to lay the smack down on Grendel's mama. Right. Though I okay, would all right, I can, I can grant that. Now, um, at what about... point does she put on the high heels? Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't get the reference. The Return of Zemeckis. Oh, I thought right, every right, time right, we right, brought right, up right, Grendel's right. mother, we had to make fun of Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, that, that that's her revenge outfit. See, the, the heels mean business. <laughs> well, stilettos. <laughs> you can put them through somebody's head. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Stiletto heels for a proper vendetta. All right, David. Well, we've, we've situated <laughs> Beowulf, but Arthur's Knights. These cats go to mass, David. Mm-hmm. They confess their sins. Yep. They still seek revenge. What's going on? Okay, lots of revenge in Mallory, too. And let's keep in mind that, you know, conventional uh, paperback copies of Mallory that you can buy at the store are a bit north of three inches thick. So I'm having <laughs> to kind of hit a few high points and generalize. By all means. Uh, yeah, revenge crops up a lot. But it's – and mainly in the – not in the judiciary form of – this man has committed evil against me, and I must see that justice is done. But in the he beat me, so now I have to beat him. <laughs> it's it's a, it's it's almost kind of an athletic one-upsmanship, uh, very frequently in Mallory within the context of 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 battle. Um, now sometimes that you know that ends up in in even worse bad blood that does end up taking on a. Uh, uh, well, something that that should have been adjudicated rather than just you know we need we need a rematch, um, but I th- I think the distinction that you if you're going to f- try to find a distinction in Mallory, it's that if there is a good revenge, it's revenge in a stand-up fight when both participants are willing and they know what's at stake. Um, bad revenge is murder. Um, the example of this is Sir Gawain, who we know from Gawain in the Green Knight is the most courteous guy ever. Well, in Mallory, he has frequent lapses of courtesy. Um, That's a nice way to put it, David. Yes. Uh, their brother – or not their brother uh, – Gawain and his brothers, Agravain and Gaharis, uh, their father is uh, is killed – uh, in battle by uh, their father is King Lot of Orkney, and he's killed in battle by King Pellinor, who is the father of the famous Sir Percival. Um, so they they swear vengeance against King Pellinor, Gawain and his brothers Agravain and Harris, and what they do is they lie in wait and they murder him. Um, they don't challenge him to a joust. It's not a stand-up fight. Um, Pellinor never sees it coming. They jump him. And when uh, the youngest of King Lot's son, uh, by the name of Gareth, when he finds out that Gawain and his other brothers uh, have committed murder in this way, uh, he shuns them 
because of their their tendency for that kind of um, bad revenge, the the revenge of murder, not the um, not the open openly facing you in a stand up fight. Uh, Gareth shuns Gawain and actually hangs out with Lancelot, who's seen as much more honorable. Now, all of this falls apart when uh, towards the end of Mort d'Arthur, when uh, Gawain's brothers, uh, Agravain and Gaheris, and his half-brother Mordred want to expose Lancelot and Guinevere's adultery. And Gawain tries to dissuade them from this because all it will do is divide the round table. Uh, they do anyway. Uh, Lancelot escapes, but Guinevere is sentenced to be burned at the stake, at which point Lancelot intervenes and rescues her, but along the way kills Gawain's brothers, including Gareth, uh, the brother of Gawain, who actually avoided Gawain because of Gawain's tendency to revenge. Um, and and, and you it, thought the Monty Python scene came out of nowhere. No, 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 it didn't. It was... <laughs> That 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 whole inadvertently killing people is definitely in Lancelot's idiom. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. <laughs> well, Gawain is the one who's going to bicker and argue about who kills who, and it's when Gawain kills Gareth that that, or when Lancelot kills Gareth that Gawain says, "Okay, I can't take that," and he insists that Arthur uh, begin a war of revenge, and so they besiege Lancelot, and that's what tears the the Round Table apart. Is right. An accidental, ki- an accidental killing, which Lancelot regrets, but uh, Gawain can't let it go. So and, eventually, it, it's revenge that destroys the Round Table. So there is a critique of it there. Well, considering that um, Thomas Mallory is writing in, you know, sort of the last dying throes of the Wars of the Roses, right? Um, he's he's seen what this kind of back and forth feuding does uh, does to a country. And so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in fact, Which, I mean, I and I'm trying to think of my history of the Wars of the Roses. I mean, it, it almost is a parallel situation where, you know, after a war in France, the king returns to England and faces a civil war of his own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see those parallel storylines. Uh, Michael, I mean, I, I know other than the Connecticut Yankee, you don't have much stake in King Arthur's court, but do you want to chime in anywhere here? No. All right, all right, I read about 15 pages of Mallory uh, 10 years ago, and uh, all right, that's, I, that's the extent of my experience. I, I so. figured that would be the case, but I didn't want to cut you off if you did want to discourse on chivalry with us. No, um, when you guys, when well, you guys uh, go back that far, I just sit here and uh, look through the books on my shelves. <laughs> I don't. I don't have much to add to those discussions. Well, as we get a little bit farther on in the literary tradition, we get to the English Renaissance, and of course, you get the Renaissance of the Seneca-style revenge play, where you've got ghosts coming back and demanding revenge. The first and most famous one being uh, Thomas Kidd's uh, Spanish tragedy. This genre really flowers there in the late 16th century, uh, and as we enter into the 17th century, probably the most well-known revenge play of the English Renaissance is also one of the most complex ones, uh, and it is, of course, Hamlet. And in this play, you've got, like I said, a revival of the classical Roman revenge tragedy where people kill each other on the orders of ghosts with happy abandon. But on the (laughs) other, Shakespeare is sophisticated enough that he realizes that England 
has just gone through a series of flips between Catholic and Protestant sovereigns, and that when you introduce a ghost, all of a sudden in this Christian era, you're introducing questions of purgatory, of demonology, of all of these things. And one of the mm-hmm. things about Hamlet that impresses me the most, and one of the things that I try to teach when I teach it, because I think that high school teachers, unfortunately, have been taken captive by the Freudians, and they want to talk about Hamlet <laughs> and his mom, and they Let's never stop to think them. about what now? <laughs> Let's liberate them. Though it's it's yes, still better yes. than the way they teach Romeo and Juliet. Which is? <laughs> As a love story. Oh, heavens, yes, yes. Uh, but at any rate, you know, this idea of, you know, what is this ghost uh, is overshadowed by the fact that you've got two conflicting traditions ramming into each other. Like I said, in the Roman tradition, it is honorable and is expected uh, for the survivor of one who is murdered to seek revenge uh on the other hand in the christian tradition we've got those passages that michael just talked about especially romans 12 that say vengeance is mine do not seek your own vengeance uh, and of course they collide in a way that turns hamlet into in my opinion one of the most interesting literary figures of the period and the scene that always sticks out to me and i'm actually going to teach this scene uh, on the day that this podcast is released, uh, is the scene where Hamlet comes upon King Claudius. Uh, he's got as much proof as he needs that Claudius is the one who murdered Daddy Hamlet. And he creeps up on him and realizes that he is in prayer to God and therefore <laughs> refuses to murder him because if he did, he would just send him to heaven because, you know, he's praying. So obviously his soul would go to heaven. Now, now that now, is but- dark. Yeah, I mean, you know, what complicates it <laughs> further, of course, is the fact that when Hamlet leaves the scene, Claudius speaks up and says, yeah, I can't really pray. I can't really repent of a sin while I'm still possessed of the effects of the sin. I still have the throne. Uh, I still have the power and the money. Um, and, you know, if I tried to say that I repent of this, I'd be lying because I'm still possessing and enjoying these things. So, I mean, this is a play where what I think of as the crucial scene in the thing uh, revolves around Hamlet deciding that he is going to, in effect, play God. Uh, He is Mm. going to exercise providential power over the soul of another human being, and he will not murder him until he is absolutely sure that he's going to send him to hell. But Nathan. Yes. A defense of Hamlet. Hit me. He he is acting that way because Claudius was sure to kill Hamlet Sr. when Hamlet Sr.'s sins were unconfessed. And that's why Hamlet Sr. is in purgatory, and that's why the ghost shows up at all. If there is even a purgatory, it's, of course, it, that's it, a... If you <laughs> If you can believe that that's uh, Hamlet Sr.'s ghost and not a demon. But from Hamlet's right. perspective, it is. Right, right. Although, at one point, Hamlet Jr., the main character of the play, says... Even if this is a demon in the shape of my father, I'm still going to kill that SOB Claudius. <laughs> so. SOB's right there in the text, too. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's, it's in the uh, C text uh, recently discovered in Gilmore's notebook. Yeah. So, so because it's in early modern, it's, it actually looks more like FOB. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Um, well, anyway, Michael, at, at any rate, I got me saying my consonants wrong. Um, I want to go to some American things, and you've already mentioned Moby Dick, and I want you to talk about him, but I also want you to talk a little bit about Hawthorne, because when he comes around, in my opinion, the revenge tale 
takes a pretty sophisticated twist in the Scarlet Letter, uh, because the character Chillingworth, uh, like Hamlet, but I think even more demonically, uh, refuses to exact a violent revenge on Dimsdale for cuckolding him, uh, but instead he slowly and tortuously ruins his soul uh, until by the end, of course, you know, Dimsdale, well, I won't spoil the ending. Michael, talk a little bit about Revenge in American Lit. I'm going to spoil the ending, by the way. All right. <laughs> so if you haven't read The Scarlet Letter, now's the time to pause your iPod, go read it, and come back to this, because I, <laughs> I am going to spoil the ending. So you get Roger Chillingworth, and he is Hester Prynne's husband, whom she's left behind in Europe, I think in, in Amsterdam. And he, he shows up after, uh, after Hester's been condemned as an uh, adulterer or adulteress. And uh, he doesn't know who the father is, but he has his suspicions. So he starts hanging out with Dimsdale, who's the, uh, the minister who impregnated Hester Prynne. And uh, so he, Dimsdale has a nervous consti- constitution, as so many people do in Hawthorne. And <laughs> Chilling- <laughs> Chillingworth uh, nurses him back to health, but at the same time he's psychologically destroying him. So he's he's getting deep into the guy's mind and kind of pulling it apart from the inside. Now what ruins this, and here's the spoiler, what ruins this is at the end of the novel, Dimsdale confesses to the townspeople what he's done, and that completely ruins Chillingworth's chance for this psychological revenge, because once you've confessed a sin like that, the knowledge of it being unconfessed can't destroy you, which is what Chillingworth was doing. So Chillingworth himself ends up dying frustrated after the main action of the novel has been completed. And and what happens is the revenge has clearly eaten Chillingworth just as much as it did Dimsdale, except that Chillingworth has no way out. There's not a confession he can really make. So um, that that novel, I mean, that novel's about a lot of things, depending on who you read as the as the major character of the of the book. So try that sometime. If you've if you've read the book before and thought the book was about Hester Prynne, go back and read it and think of it as being about Chillingworth, or think of it as being about Pearl, or think of it as being about Dimsdale, and the the whole tenor of the novel changes, which, which is right. one thing. And, that Ma- makes and Michael, I. I know there's an Americanist in my life who doesn't especially like Scarlet Letter. Was it you or another one of my friends? I hated it for years and years, and I finally came around to it a couple of years ago. Okay, all right, because I mean, like I said, I mean, I I find it a permutation of the revenge tale that is so sophisticated psychologically that I can't help but love it. But because um, I love a good revenge story. <laughs> I, I want to point people, as usual, to John Updike. Updike actually wrote three different versions of the Scarlet Letter um, from each of the major perspectives. So there's one written by huh. the Roger Chillingworth character, and Nathan, you've read two of them. There's there's one written by the Dimsdale character, and there's one from the perspective of Hester Prynne. And those books are um, A Month of Sundays, which is the uh, the Dimsdale one. Okay. Which, it's it's about a minister who uh, sleeps with his entire female congregation and ends up getting sent away. Um, the, <laughs> Roger's version is the Chillingworth okay. one, and I'll talk about oh. that one in just a second. And uh, S, which nobody likes, is the Hester Prynne version. <laughs> nobody likes S. So, <laughs> anyway, the th- interesting thing about Roger's version, I've talked about it on the podcast before and gotten into trouble about it because it's about a computer scientist who comes off looking rather uh, unpleasant, but... <laughs> um, 
the the thing about that is it's about a um, divinity professor who's mostly lost his faith and about a computer scientist who's very zealous who thinks he can prove the existence of God. And so it's a, it's a theological book, but at the same time, because it's Updike, it's a book about sex. Right. And Roger, <laughs> the uh, divinity professor, believes that Dale, the computer uh, scientist, is sleeping with uh, his, Roger's, wife. So what that book lacks, I think, and it's, it's an interesting book, but what, what it lacks is a is a compelling destruction of the Chillingworth character. So the the act of revenge instead of destroying Dale about the affair becomes this attempt to destroy Dale's faith. Um and it works. I mean again spoiler alert. Um it it, it works and yet what Updike does with Roger is not nearly as strong as what Hawthorne does with Chillingworth. Right. Well, and I mean that's uh... That is the most heart-wrenching scene. I mean, I, I still have nightmares about this scene in the You're novel. You're talking about the, when, the Christmas party scene at the end? Yes, yes, where the divinity professor takes the young computer scientist to the cocktail party, and someone basically offhandedly, with one hand behind his back, destroys his faith in front of him. And I just, I, I, I still, I mean, throw up a little in my mouth when I think about that scene. Yeah, it's it's uh, existentially terrifying, which is uh, I mean, Updike is good when Updike writes about faith. That's the way he writes about it. But that that's the uh, the major act of revenge in that book, um, which I, I do recommend. And then well, I I, I, wanna... I had forgotten that it's a Christmas party. Yeah, it is. I think it's a Christmas. That's party. even worse. <laughs> yeah, because most of the book takes place in October and November, so it's a Christmas party. Okay, all right. Uh. It's been a few years. Now, we can also compare The Scarlet Letter to uh, Moby Dick, which is another book that's really... I mean, Moby Dick is about a bagillion different things, but one, <laughs> of the things, one of the things it's about is revenge. So you get the Ahab... Like, Captain Ahab is obsessed with Moby Dick the White Whale, primarily because the whale stole his leg a few years earlier. So, um... I mean, obviously, you see the that effects. That inspire anger. <laughs> you see that the makes effects sense of revenge. To me. <laughs> you, you see the effects of the revenge in that book as well, and I'm sure everybody knows the ending of Moby Dick. But if you don't, um, let's just say things don't end well for Ahab or anyone else who gets sucked <laughs> into this bizarre quest for revenge. Right, and of course, Ahab, you know, not only alludes to the famous Old Testament king, but is the Hebrew verb for love. So. You know, and there's... it's a reference to Ahab the Arab, right? The Ray Stevens song? My understanding is the book is mostly based on Ray Stevens songs. <laughs> Sometimes I can't win with you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate... Now uh, you know what it... my wife feels like. Yeah. <laughs> um, David, we've talked about a pretty wide array of text here. Uh, but, of course, most of the revenge stories that people consume in 2010 don't appear in literary anthologies, uh, but they appear in movies and video games and narratives and pop music and those sorts of things. And, David, I'm going to let you kick off our wrap-up wrap up discussion with these questions. I mean, why do we Christians tend to get more uneasy about revenge stories in certain genres, let's say in video games or gangster rap, but we look more forgivingly on genres like cowboy movies and comic books and the crown jewel of the evangelical youth group, The Princess Bride, yeah. <laughs> that really revolve around that same revenge story. And while you're in the neighborhood, how should we think as Christians about these pop culture iterations of the revenge tale? Go to yeah. town, David. Hello. <laughs> my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Um... How do we deal with it? Uh, I think there is a difference 
um, certainly in the way they're consumed and in the way uh, in the way that they affect us. Um, I, I'm going to appeal to uh, this. This is you know this is some some kind of wacky anthropological myth theory that I picked up from uh, my my mentor back at UAB. Um, he would talk about uh, what uh, Australian Aborigines called the dream time, which is uh, for for them it's it's the the universe is divided into two parts: the kind of the mundane part where we live our lives. And then this this thing called the re, the dream time, which is where the myths happen. It's where the creation story happens. It's where truths are. And so, whenever they would tell a story of of gods and heroes and monsters and creations and apocalypses and all those kinds of things, um, those things happen in in the dream time. And when we look at when we tell us a, a mythic story, we can look at the issues of 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 justice and wrath, and maybe be able to see those kinds of distinctions um, more clearly in in that kind of mythic context. And I think cowboys and superheroes currently occupy that context for for uh, American pop culture. Um, there are definitely, okay, so where's the distinction between that and the video game then? Well, um, and certainly there are, there are Westerns and superhero films that complicate that, that want to draw the cowboys and the superheroes out of the mythic realm and into the mundane. Um, I don't know about video games. I don't know which ones you're referring to. Um, all the ones I play were, uh, involved the rescuing of princesses from dragons in a sewer. Um, <laughs> But uh, if you're talking about uh, gangster rap or, you know, gang violence, things like that, uh, you're, you've already said it in a criminal setting, which has no pretense of justice, but only Achillean rage. Um, and most modern realistic settings are already have the complicating particulars that we experience as making boots on the ground, real life morality incredibly difficult. All right. And so... So revenge in those kinds of settings, um, I, I think it it feels more problematic because we're less able to think about it mythically or abstractly and see the see the struggle as kind of as a more cosmic battle of of you know of Marduk and Tiamat you know fought all over again except in the old west. So that, I mean at least that's 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 kind of the way. I think about it when I'm consuming these stories. All right. So, so David uses a, a sort of mythic distance to make distinctions between these. Michael, I mean, what do you think about these strong distinctions that we, that we, I, I, we don't even make them out loud, but we certainly seem to imply them in evangelical culture. I will not bother to say that, you know, there's probably a racial element to that, but I, I'd say, also, it's a matter of how explicit something is. I mean, The Princess Bride is not terribly explicit. Uh, gangster rap is. And I, I think people may say they object to the revenge element in gangster rap, although I, mu I must say I've not heard that argument. People people might say that, but I suspect what they're really objecting to is the how explicit the music is, uh, sexually and um, violently, and, and just in terms of profanity. All right. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to be the, the – see, you guys have actually left me some room to disagree, so that's good. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> now it gets ugly. Yeah, now it's going to get ugly. I didn't mean to you put know, down Bismarcky, Nathan. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, first of all, I'm not going to cast any stones because I know full well that if I had a couple hours to kill with my son, I could very easily throw on the Mask of Zorro or the Princess Bride and we would watch it and we would enjoy it. Um, but this is something that, I mean, I do see some tension going on, you know, because these are stories that don't get critiqued. And I, I guess that's the element of it that bothers me. And it's something sure. that I try to do when I consume these things is say, okay, you know, this is definitely to use some platonic language, feeding the worst parts of my soul. You know, uh, when I want to see Christopher Guest run through with a sword, that's not the better part of me that wants that. Well, and, that you know, is Christopher I, Guest. What now? I didn't realize the bad guy in that movie was Christopher Guest. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when I, you know, want to see the good guy in a cowboy movie, you know, gun down the Curly Bill or whoever, you know, I mean, that is not a part of me that I necessarily want to feed, although that part is hungry. Uh, mm. Now, you know, I think that one of the things that I, you know, at least try to do with my own kids and also with the kids I work with at church is to say, okay, let's not pretend those things are non-existent, but let's do some criticism of them. And David, I, I think I will grant that there are certain contexts where certain artifacts, and this is why I, I try not to distinguish between broad genres too much. There mm -hmm. are certain artifacts that turn the drug war revenge story into a heroic revenge story and i do want to criticize those on the other hand there are also stories like those found in the tv series the wire which are decidedly gangster stories but they are more euripidean in that mm -hmm. there is no glorification of them even as there's no glorification of the cops who are chasing them and i, I think of uh, unforgiven the clint eastwood okay yeah picture yeah. that way too but you already invoked curly bill yeah uh, you know, I would I would look. Uh, well, I mean that 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 movie was already, it it was made as a critique of the Western genre. That's right. Oh, absolutely. It's Clint Eastwood genre. turning his own legacy upside down. Right. But I mean, well, I, it, I think David's referring to Tombstone, though. To oh, what? excuse me. Wait, Tombstone? what? No. Am I referring to Tombstone? Yeah, the 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 main villain in that story is Curly Bill. It's the one with uh uh, Val Kilmer is Doc Holliday. I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah, but, uh, um, one of now the who's who's, uh, who's who's the guy in Unforgiven? Clint Eastwood. No, yeah. no, no, no. Gene no, no, Hackman, no. the bad guy. Isn't it Gene, Gene Hackman? Hack yeah. Gene Hackman. What's his character's name? Uh, he's actually the town sheriff, but he's so corrupt that the local prostitutes hire some guns to come take care of business because he won't. And that's the idea of Unforgiven: is that you know this former outlaw gunfighter has has found forgiveness in a sense in a his name life. Is, his name oh. is little bill little bill okay keep going his then, name David. his keep name rolling. is little bill see that yeah i i got confused he's another yeah I, I had in mind curly bill played yeah. by uh oh i forget the name the guy's name but he also plays cy tolliver in the hbo series deadwood right 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 um it i mean unforgiven was made you know, it's it's a critique. It's turning that thing on its head, like Michael said. Um, sure. But if you go back to uh, Fistful of Dollars, what you have is not a particular – you don't have – you have a man with no past, with no name, with no identity. He, he's a moral cipher who wanders into this 
this lawless town where there is no power for good or justice. Uh-huh. Right? There, there, there are only the two, the two opposed evil powers, and, um, and what, and what he does is, is go in there and see that there is a, there is an injustice that has been done. A man's wife has been taken, and so, what, what he, he does is he, he plays the, he plays them off of each other so that they're, they're killing each other in the midst of revenge. You know, they're, they're, the two factions are killing each other in this continuing vendetta. But along the but along the way, the whole purpose is to, you know, to reunite uh, a, this this little family that's been torn apart through no fault of their own during the middle of it. And anyway, for for me, anyway, that story is I think distinct from Unforgiven in its its kind of unrootedness in place and time. It's hard to tell. You know, there seems to be no interaction between that story and Western history as we know it. It's just very broadly, these are the Americans and these are the Mexicans and they're on the border. Right. And, and anyway, that, that's that's kind of what I mean by dream time is that it, it's, it's much easier to abstract fistful of dollars into kind of a meditation on on society and morals and all that kind of stuff without – you know the the moral particularities of circumstance um doesn't that make it more dangerous david what do you mean once you abstract the revenge quest doesn't that mean you can apply it to anything um only if you stop paying to attention to your own particulars <laughs> um i mean that that does make it dangerous but i mean any any attempt to to abstract uh, can lead us to, uh, as Nathan also points out, uh, to forget the particulars. But I do right. still think that you know that that kind of moral abstracting is something we need to be doing. But and then, incidentally, in- David, I I think that you know the the video games I had in mind were a series were the long line of ninja video games that really kind of got its start in the eighties. Ninja Gaiden. Uh, Ninja Gaiden is a revenge story. Tenchu Stealth Assassin is a revenge story. You know, it seems, you know, and again, to go back to your idea of mythic distance, you know, because they are marketed largely to American children, uh, you know, it is this cultural other who is seeking out honor by murder, you know, and I mean, I think that, you know, Michael's point that, you know, abstracting it can be dangerous. Uh, mm. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, your point is also given that, you know, with a with an attention to the particularities and the contingencies of history uh, that, you know, we can avoid some of that transference. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I guess Ninja Gaiden, I, ne- I never could make it past that that like first level when you had to like jump back and forth between walls and there was that guy with the shuriken up at the top. Yeah, that was a hard game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want I want vengeance on the guy who made that game. All right. <laughs> oh, and Shinobi, that's another one that's a revenge game. Fun. That's the other one that I was thinking of. Well, at any rate, guys, uh, just looking at the clock, it doesn't look like we have any time for any more ninjas. Uh, <laughs> David, Michael, I want to thank both of you for a good discussion. Uh, readers, I want to encourage you. I mean, if you think that we are off base on this pop culture revenge stuff, 
or if we've gotten Mallory wrong, uh, or if you have the definitive interpretation of Matthew 5, by all means, please email us, let us know. Uh, next week episode, Michael, you'll be at the helm. What are we talking about? We're hopefully finally getting to this dogma episode we've been promising all season. All right. Very good. Uh, if you want to take a look at our writing, you can go to www.christianhumanist.org slash chb, as in blog. If you want to go to a recently updated but not quite complete archive of our episodes, christianhumanist.org slash chp as in podcast, is the place to go. If you want to email us, uh, tell us about this week's episode. Let us know where we're wrong, where we're right, and where we are awesome. You can email us at <laughs> thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And that's all we've got for today. So on behalf of Michael Farmer and on behalf of David Grubbs, this <laughs> is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. Oh, lonely and endless life. You are